Chapter 7. Owls and Aristocracy Now winter was upon us. Everything was redolent with the smoke of olive wood fires. The shutters creaked and slapped the sides of the house as the wind caught them, and the birds and leaves were tumbled across a dark, lowering sky. The brown mountains of the mainland wore tattered caps of snow, and the rain filled the eroded rocky valleys, turning them into foaming torrents that fled eagerly to the sea, carrying mud and debris with them. Once they reached the sea, they spread like yellow veins through the blue water, and the surface was dotted with squill bulbs, logs and twisted branches, dead beetles and butterflies, clumps of brown grass and splintered canes. Storms would be brewed in among the whitened spikes of the Albanian mountains and then tumble across to us, great black piles of cumulus spitting a stinging rain with sheet lightning blooming and dying like yellow ferns across the sky. It was at the beginning of the winter that I received a letter. Dear Gerald Durrell, I understand from our mutual friend, Dr. Stephanides, that you are a keen naturalist and possess a number of pets. I was wondering, therefore, if you would care to have a white owl, which my workmen found in an old shed they were demolishing. He has, unfortunately, a broken wing, but is otherwise in good health and feeding well. If you would like him, I suggest you come to lunch on Friday and take him with you when you return home. Perhaps you would be kind enough to let me know. A quarter to one or one o'clock would be suitable. Yours sincerely, Countess Mavrodaki. This letter excited me for two reasons. Firstly, because I had always wanted a barn owl, for that was obviously what it was, and secondly, because the whole of Corfu society had been trying unveilingly for years to get to know the Countess. She was the recluse par excellence. Immensely wealthy, she lived in a gigantic, rambling Venetian villa deep in the country, and never entertained or saw anybody except the workmen on her vast estate. Her acquaintance with Theodore was due only to the fact that he was her medical adviser. The Countess was reputed to possess a large and valuable library, and for this reason Larry had been most anxious to try and get himself invited to her villa, but without success. Dear God, he said bitterly when I showed him my invitation, here I've been trying for months to get that old harpy to let me see her books, and she invites you to lunch. There's no justice in the world. I said that after I'd lunched with the Countess, maybe I could ask her if he could see her books. After she'd had lunch with you, I shouldn't think she'll be willing to show me a copy of the Times, let alone her library, said Larry witheringly. However, in spite of my brother's low opinion of my social graces, I was determined to put in a good word for him if I saw a suitable opportunity. It was, I felt, an important, even solemn occasion, and so I dressed with care. My shirt and shorts were carefully laundered, and I had prevailed upon Mother to buy me a new pair of sandals and a new straw hat. I rode on Sally, who had a new blanket and as a saddle to honour the occasion, for the Countess's estate was some distance away. The day was dark and the ground mushy underfoot. It looked as though we would have a storm, but I hoped this would not be until after I had arrived, for the rain would spoil the crisp whiteness of my shirt. As we jogged along through the olives, the occasional woodcock zooming up from the myrtles in front of us, I became increasingly nervous. I discovered that I was ill-prepared for this occasion. To begin with, I had forgotten to bring my four-legged chicken in spirits. 
I'd felt sure that the Countess would want to see this, and in any case I felt it would provide a subject of conversation that would help us in the initial awkward stages of our meeting. Secondly, I'd forgotten to consult anybody on the correct way to address a Countess. Your Majesty would surely be too formal, I thought, especially as she was giving me an owl. Perhaps Highness would be better, or perhaps just a simple ma'am. Puzzling over the intricacies of protocol, I had left Sally to her own devices, and so she had promptly fallen into a donkey doze. Of all the beasts of burden, only the donkey seems capable of falling asleep while still moving. The result was that she ambled close to the ditch at the side of the road, suddenly stumbled and lurched, and I, deep in thought, fell off her back into six inches of mud and water. Sally stared down at me with an expression of accusing astonishment that she always wore when she knew that she was in the wrong. I was so furious. I could have strangled her. My new sandals oozed, my shorts and shirt, so crisp, so clean, so well-behaved looking a moment before, were now bespattered with mud and bits of decaying waterweed. I could have wept with rage and frustration. We were too far from home to retrace our footsteps so that I could change. There was nothing for it but to go on, damp and miserable, convinced now that it did not matter how I addressed the Countess. She would, I felt sure, take one look at my gypsy-like condition and order me home. Not only would I lose my owl, but any chance I had of getting Larry in to see her library. I was a fool, I thought bitterly. I should have walked instead of trusting myself to this hopeless creature, who was now trotting along at a brisk pace, her ears pricked like furry arum lilies. Presently we came to the Countess's villa, lying deep in the olive groves, approached by a drive lined with tall green and pink-trunked eucalyptus trees. The entrance to the drive was guarded by two columns on which were perched a pair of white-winged lions, who stared scornfully at Sally and me as we trotted down the drive. The house was immense, built in a hollow square. It had at one time been a lovely rich Venetian red, but this had now faded to a rose-pink. The plaster bulged and cracked in places by the damp, and I noticed that a number of brown tiles were missing from the roof. The eaves had slung under them more swallows' nests, now empty like small forgotten brown ovens, than I had ever seen congregated in one spot before. I tied Sally up under a convenient tree and made my way to the archway that led into the central patio. Here a rusty chain hung down, and when I pulled it, I heard a bell jangle faintly somewhere in the depths of the house. I waited patiently for some time and was just about to ring the bell again when the massive wooden doors were opened. There stood a man who looked to me exactly like a bandit. He was tall and powerful, with a great jutting hawk nose, sweeping flamboyant white moustache and a mane of curling white hair. He was wearing a scarlet caboose, a loose white blouse beautifully embroidered with scarlet and gold thread, baggy pleated black pants and on his feet, upturned charukias, decorated with enormous red and white pom-poms. His brown face cracked into a grin, and I saw that all his teeth were gold. It was like looking into a mint. Kilie Darrell? he inquired. Welcome. I followed him through the patio full of magnolia trees and forlorn winter flower beds and went into the house. He led me down a long corridor, tiled in scarlet and blue, threw open a door and ushered me into a great gloomy room lined from ceiling to floor with bookshelves. At one end was a large fireplace in which a blaze flapped and hissed and crackled. 
Over the fireplace was an enormous gold-framed mirror, nearly black with age. Sitting by the fire, on a long couch, almost obliterated by coloured shawls and cushions, was the Countess. She was not a bit what I had expected. I had visualised her as being tall, gaunt, and rather forbidding, but as she rose to her feet and danced across the room to me, I saw that she was tiny, very fat, and as pink and dimpled as a rosebud. Her honey-coloured hair was piled high on her head in a pompadour style, and her eyes, under permanently arched and surprised eyebrows, were as green and shiny as unripe olives. She took my hand in both her warm little pudgy ones and clasped it to her ample breast. "'How kind, how kind of you to come!' she exclaimed in a musical little girl's voice, exuding an overpowering odour of palmer violets and brandy in equal quantities. "'How very, very kind! May I call you Jerry? Of course I may. My friends call me Matilda.' It isn't my real name, of course. That's Stephanie Zinya, so uncouth, like a patent medicine. I much prefer Matilda, don't you? I said, cautiously, that I thought Matilda a very nice name. Yes, a comforting old-fashioned name. Names are so important, don't you think? Now he there, she said, gesturing at the man who had shown me in, he calls himself Demetrios. I call him Mustafa. She glanced at the man and then leaned forward, nearly asphyxiating me with brandy and palmer violets, and hissed suddenly in Greek, He's a misbegotten Turk. The man's face grew red, and his moustache bristled, making him look more like a bandit than ever. I am not a Turk, he snarled. You lie. You are a Turk, and your name's Mustafa, she retorted. It isn't. I'm not. It isn't. I'm not said the man, almost incoherent with rage. You are lying. I'm not. You are. I'm not. You are. I'm not. You are a damned elderly liar. Elderly? She squeaked, her face growing red. You dare to call me elderly? You, you Turk, you. You are elderly and you are fat, said Demetrius Mustafa coldly. That's too much, she screamed. Elderly, fat, that's too much. You're sacked. Take a month's notice. No, leave this instant, you son of a misbegotten Turk. Demetrios Mustafa drew himself up regally. Very well, he said. Do you wish me to serve the drinks and lunch before I go? Of course, she said. In silence, he crossed the room and extracted a bottle of champagne from an ice bucket behind the sofa. He opened it and poured equal quantities of brandy and champagne into three large glasses. He handed us one each and lifted the third himself. I give you a toast, he said to me solemnly. We will drink to the health of a fat elderly liar. I was in a quandary. If I drank the toast, it would seem that I was concurring in his opinion of the Countess, and that would scarcely seem polite. And yet, if I did not drink the toast, he looked quite capable of doing me an injury. As I hesitated, the Countess, to my astonishment, burst into delighted giggles, her smooth fat cheeks dimpling charmingly. You mustn't tease our guest, Mustafa. But I must admit the toast was a good touch, she said, gulping at her drink. Demetrios Mustafa grinned at me, his teeth glittering and winking in the firelight. Drink, Kyrie, 
he said. Take no notice of us. She lives for food, drink, and fighting, and it is my job to provide all three. Nonsense, said the Countess, seizing my hand and leading me to the sofa, so that I felt as though I were hitched to a small, fat, pink cloud. Nonsense. I live for a lot of things, a lot of things. Now don't stand there drinking my drink, you drunkard. Go and see to the food. Demetrios Mustafa drained his glass and left the room, while the Countess seated herself on the sofa, clasping my hand in hers, and beamed at me. This is cosy, she said delightedly. Just you and I. Tell me, do you always wear mud all over your clothes? I hastily and embarrassedly explained about Sally. So you came by donkey, she said, making it sound a very exotic form of transport. How wise of you. I distrust motor cars myself. Noisy, uncontrollable things. Unreliable. I remember we had one when my husband was alive. A big yellow one. But, my dear, it was a brute. It would obey my husband, but it would not do a thing I told it to do. One day it deliberately backed into a large stall containing fruit and vegetables, in spite of all I was trying to do to stop it, and then went over the edge of the harbour into the sea. When I came out of hospital, I said to my husband, Henri, I said, that was his name, such a nice bourgeois name, don't you think? Where was I? Oh, yes, well, Henri, I said, that car's malevolent, I said. It's possessed of an evil spirit. You must sell it. And so he did. Brandy and champagne on an empty stomach combined with a fire to make me feel extremely mellow. My head whirled pleasantly, and I nodded and smiled as the Countess chattered on eagerly. My husband was a very cultured man, very cultured indeed. He collected books, you know. Books, paintings, stamps, beer bottle tops, anything cultural appeal, appealed to him. Just before he died, he started collecting busts of Napoleon. You would be surprised how many busts they had made of that horrible little Corsican. My husband had 582. Henri, I said to him, Henri, this must stop. Either you give up collecting busts of Napoleon, or I will leave you and go to St. Helena. I said it as a joke, though, only as a joke. And you know what he said? He said he'd been thinking about going to St. Helena for a holiday, with all his busts. My God, what dedication! It was not to be born. I believe in a little bit of culture in its place, but not to become obsessed with it. Demetrios Mustafa came into the room, refilled our glasses, and said, Lunch in five minutes, and departed again. He was what you might call a compulsive collector, my dear. The times that I trembled when I saw that fanatical gleam in his eye. At a state fair once he saw a combine harvester. Simply immense it was, and I could see the gleam in his eye, but I put my foot down. Henri, I said to him, Henri, we are not going to have combine harvesters all over the place. If you must collect, why not something sensible? Jewels or furs or something? It may seem harsh, my dear, but what could I do? If I had relaxed for an instant, he would have had the whole house full of farm machinery. Demetrios Mustafa came into the room again. Lunch is ready, he said. Still chattering, the Countess led me by the hand out of the room, down the tiled corridor, then down some creaking wooden stairs into a huge kitchen in the cellars. The kitchen at our villa was enormous enough, but this kitchen simply dwarfed it. It was stone-flagged, and at one end a positive battery of charcoal fires glowed and winked under the bubbling pots. 
The walls were covered with a great variety of copper pots, kettles, platters, coffee pots, huge serving dishes and soup tureens. They all glowed with a pinky-red gleam in the firelight, glinting and winking like tiger beetles. In the centre of the floor was a twelve-foot-long dining table of beautiful polished walnut. This was carefully set for two, with snowy white serviettes and gleaming cutlery. In the centre of the table, two giant silver candelabras each held a white forest of lighted candles. The whole effect of a kitchen and a state dining room combined was very odd. It was very hot and so redolent with delicious smells, they almost suffocated the Countess's scent. I hope you don't mind eating in the kitchen, said the Countess, making it sound as though it were really the most degrading thing to eat food in such humble surroundings. I said I thought eating in the kitchen was a most sensible idea, especially in winter, as it was warmer. Quite right, said the Countess, seating herself as Demetrius Mustafa held her chair for her. And you see, if we eat upstairs, I get complaints from this elderly Turk about how far he has to walk. It isn't the distance I complain of, it's the weight of the food, said Demetrius Mustafa, pouring a pale green-gold wine into our glasses. If you didn't eat so much... It wouldn't be so bad. Oh, stop complaining and get on with serving, said the Countess plaintively, tucking her serviette carefully under her dimpled chin. I, filled with champagne and brandy, was now more than a little drunk and ravenously hungry. I viewed with alarm the number of eating utensils that were flanking my plate, for I was not quite sure which to use first. I remembered Mother's maxim that you started on the outside and worked in, but there were so many utensils that I was uneasy. I decided to wait and see what the Countess used and then follow suit. It was an unwise decision, for I soon discovered that she used any and every knife, fork or spoon with a fine lack of discrimination, and so before long I became so muddled I was doing the same. The first course that Demetrios must have set before us was a fine clear soup, sequined with tiny golden bubbles of fat, with fingernail-sized croutons floating like crisp little rafts on an amber sea. It was delicious and the Countess had two helpings, scrunching up the croutons, the noise like someone walking over crisp leaves. Demetrios Mustafa filled our glasses with more of the pale musky wine, and placed before us a platter of minute baby fish, each one fried a golden brown, slices of yellow-green lemons in a large dish and a brimming sauce-boat of some exotic sauce unknown to me accompanying it. The Countess piled her plate high with fish, added a lava flow of sauce, and then squeezed lemon juice lavishly over the fish, the table, and herself. She beamed at me, her face now a bright rose pink, her forehead slightly beaded with sweat. Her prodigious appetite did not appear to impair her conversational powers one jot, for she talked incessantly. Don't you love these little fish? Heavenly! Of course it's such a pity they should die so young, but there we are. So nice to be able to eat all of them without worrying about the bones. Such a relief! Henri, my husband, you know, started to collect skeletons once. My dear, the house looked and smelt like a mortuary. Henri, I said to him, Henri, this must stop. This is an unhealthy death wish you have developed. You must go and see a psychiatrist. Demetrios Mustafa removed our empty plates, poured for us a red wine, dark as the heart of a dragon, and then placed before us a dish in which lay snipe the heads twisted round so that their long beaks could skewer themselves and their empty eye sockets look at us accusingly. They were plump and brown with cooking, each having its own little square of toast. 
They were surrounded by thin wafers of fried potatoes like drifts of autumn leaves, pale greeny-white candles of asparagus, and small peas. "'I simply cannot understand people who are vegetarians,' said the Countess, banging vigorously at a snipe's skull with her fork so that she might crack it and get to the brain. "'Henri once tried to be a vegetarian. Would you believe it? But I couldn't endure it. "'Henri,' I said to him, "'this must stop. We have enough food in the larder to feed an army, and I can't eat it single-handed. Imagine, my dear, I had just ordered two dozen hares. "'Henri,' I said, "'you will have to give up this foolish fad.' It struck me that Henri, although obviously a bit of a trial as a husband, had nevertheless led a very frustrated existence. Demetrios Mustafa cleared away the debris of the snipe and poured out more wine. I was beginning to feel bloated with food, and I hoped that there was not too much more to come. But there was still an army of knives and forks and spoons, unused beside my plate. So it was with alarm I saw Demetrios Mustafa approaching through the gloomy kitchen bearing a huge dish. Ah! said the Countess, holding up her plump hands in excitement. The main dish! What is it, Mustafa? What is it? The wild boar that Macroyanis sent, said Demetrios Mustafa. Oh, the boar, the boar, squeaked the Countess, clasping her fat cheeks in her hands. Oh, lovely! I had forgotten all about it. You do like wild boar, I hope. I said that it was one of my favourite meats, which was true. But could I have a very small helping, please? But of course you shall, she said, leaning over the great brown gravy glistening haunch and starting to cut thick pink slabs of it. She placed three of these on a plate, obviously under the impression that this was by anyone's standards a small portion, and then proceeded to surround them with the accoutrements. There were piles of the lovely little golden wild mushrooms, chanterelles with their delicate, almost winey flavour, tiny marrows stuffed with sour cream and capers, potatoes baked in their skins, neatly split and anointed with butter, carrots red as a frosty winter sun, and great tree trunks of white leeks poached in cream. I surveyed this dish of food, and surreptitiously undid the top three buttons of my shorts. We used to get wild boar such a lot when Henri was alive. He used to go to Albania and shoot them, you know, but now we seldom have it. What a treat! Will you have some more mushrooms? No, so good for one. After this, I think we will have a pause. A pause is essential, I always think, for good digestion, said the Countess, adding naively, and it enables you to eat so much more. The wild boar was fragrant and succulent, having been marinated well with herb-scented wine and stuffed with garlic cloves, but even so I only just managed to finish it. The Countess had two helpings, both identical in size, and then leaned back, her face congested to a pale puce colour, and mopped the sweat from her brow with an inadequate lace handkerchief. A pause, eh? she said thickly, smiling at me. A pause to marshal our resources. I felt that I had not any resources to marshal, but I did not like to say so. I nodded and smiled, and undid all the rest of the buttons on my shorts. During the pause, the Countess smoked a long, thin cheroot and ate salted peanuts, chatting on interminably about her husband. The pause did me good. I felt a little less solid and somnolent with food. When the Countess eventually decided that we had rested our internal organs sufficiently, she called for the next course, and Demetrios Mustafa produced two mercifully small omelettes, 
crispy brown on the outside and liquid and succulent on the inside, stuffed with tiny pink shrimps. What have you got for a sweet? inquired the Countess, her mouth full of omelette. I didn't make one, said Demetrios Mustafa. The Countess's eyes grew round and fixed. You didn't make a sweet, she said, in tones of horror, as though he were confessing to some heinous crime. I didn't have time, said Demetrios Mustafa. You can't expect me to do all of this cooking and all of the housework. But no sweet, said the Countess despairingly. You can't have lunch without a sweet. Well, I bought you some meringues, said Mustafa. You'll have to do with those. Oh, lovely, said the Countess, glowing and happy again. Just what's needed. It was the last thing I needed. The meringues were large and white and brittle as coral and stuffed to overflowing with cream. I wished fervently I'd brought Roger with me, as he could have sat under the table and accepted half my food, since the Countess was far too occupied with her own plate and her reminiscences really to concentrate on me. Now, she said at last, swallowing the last mouthful of meringue and brushing the white crumbs from her chin. Now, do you feel replete? Or would you care for a little something more? Some fruit, perhaps? Not that there's very much at this time of year. I said, no, thank you very much. I had quite sufficient. The Countess sighed and looked at me soulfully. I think nothing would have pleased her more than to ply me with another two or three courses. You don't eat enough, she said. A growing boy like you should eat more. You're far too thin for your age. Does your mother feed you properly? I could imagine Mother's wrath if she had heard this innuendo. I said, yes, Mother was an excellent cook and we all fed like lords. Well, I'm glad to hear it, said the Countess, but you still look a little peaky to me. I could not say so, but the reason I was beginning to look peaky was that the assault of food upon my stomach was beginning to make itself felt. I said as politely as I could that I thought I ought to be getting back. But of course, dear, said the Countess. Oh, dear me, a quarter past four already. How time flies. She sighed at the thought, then brightened perceptibly. However, it's nearly time for tea. Are you sure you wouldn't like to stay and have something? I said no, that Mother would be worried about me. Now, let's see, said the Countess. What did you come for? Oh, yes, the owl. Mustafa, bring this boy his owl, and bring me some coffee and some of those nice Turkish delights up in the lounge. Mustafa appeared with a cardboard box done up with string and handed it to me. I wouldn't open it until you get home, he said. That's a wild one, that. I was overcome with the terrifying thought that if I did not hurry my departure, the Countess would ask me to partake of Turkish delight with her. So I thanked them both sincerely for my owl and made my way to the front door. Well, said the Countess, it's been enchanting having you. Absolutely enchanting. You must come again. You must come in the spring or the summer when we have more choice of fruit and vegetables. Mustafa's got a way of cooking octopus which makes it simply melt in your mouth. I said I would love to come again, making a mental vow that if I did, I would starve for three days in advance. Here, said the Countess, pressing an orange into my pocket. Take this. You might feel peckish on the way home. As I mounted Sally and trotted off down the drive, she called, Drive carefully! Grim-faced, I sat there with the owl clasped to my bosom until we were outside the gates of the Countess's estate. Then the jogging I was subjected to on Sally's back was too much. I dismounted 
went behind an olive tree and was deliciously and flamboyantly sick. When I got home, I carried the owl up to my bedroom, untied the box and lifted him, struggling and beak-clicking, out onto the floor. The dogs, who had gathered round in a circle to view the new addition, backed away hurriedly. They knew what Ulysses could do when he was in a bad temper, and this owl was three times his size. He was, I thought, one of the most beautiful birds I had ever seen. The feathers on his back and wings were honeycomb golden, smudged with pale ash grey. His breast was a spotless cream white, and the mask of white feathers round his dark, strangely oriental-looking eyes was as crisp and as starched-looking as any Elizabethan's ruff. His wing was not as bad as I'd feared. It was a clean break, and after half an hour's struggle, during which he managed to draw blood on several occasions, I had it splinted up to my satisfaction. The owl, which I had decided to call Lampedusa, simply because the name appealed to me, seemed to be belligerently scared of the dogs, totally unwilling to make friends with Ulysses, and viewed Augustus Tickletummy with undisguised loathing. I felt he might be happier, till he settled down, in a dark, secluded place, so I carried him up to the attic. One of the attic rooms was very tiny, and lit by one small window, which was so covered with cobwebs and dust that it had allowed little light to penetrate the room. It was quiet and dim as a cave, and I thought that here Lampedusa would enjoy his convalescence. I put him on the floor with a large saucer of chopped meat and locked the door carefully so that he would not be disturbed. That evening, when I went to visit him, taking him a dead mouse by way of a present, he seemed very much improved. He had eaten most of his meat and now hissed and beak-clicked at me with outspread wings and blazing eyes as he pitter-pattered about the floor. Encouraged by his obvious progress, I left him with his mouse and went to bed. Some hours later, I was awakened by the sound of voices emanating from Mother's room. Wondering sleepily what on earth the family could be doing up at that hour, I got out of bed and stuck my head out of the bedroom door to listen. I tell you, Larry was saying, it's a damn great poltergeist. It can't be a poltergeist, dear, said Mother. Poltergeists throw things. Well, whatever it is, is up there clanking its chains, said Larry, and I want it exorcised. You and Margot are supposed to be the experts on the afterlife. You go up and do it. I'm not going up there, said Margot tremulously. It might be anything. It might be a malignant spirit. It's bloody malignant, all right, said Larry. It's been keeping me awake for the last hour. Are you sure it isn't the wind or something, dear? asked Mother. I know the difference between wind and a damned ghost playing around with balls and chains, said Larry. Perhaps it's burglars, said Margot more to give herself confidence than anything else. Perhaps it's burglars and we ought to wake Leslie. Half asleep and still bee drowsy from the liquor I had consumed that day, I could not think what the family were talking about. It seemed as intriguing as any of the other crises they seemed capable of evoking at the most unexpected hours of the day or night, so I went to Mother's door and peered into the room. Larry was marching up and down, his dressing gown swishing imperially. "'Something's got to be done,' he said. "'I can't sleep with rattling chains over my head, "'and if I can't sleep, I can't write.' "'I don't expect what you expect us to do about it, dear,' said Mother. "'I'm sure it must be the wind.' "'Yes, you can't expect us to go up there,' said Margot. "'You're a man. You go.' "'Look,' said Larry, "'you are the one who came back from London "'covered with ectoplasm and talking about the infinite. 
It's probably some hellish thing you've conjured up from one of your seances that's followed you here. That makes it your pet. You go and deal with it. The word pet penetrated. Surely it could not be Lampedusa. Like all owls, barn owls have wings as soft and as silent as dandelion clocks. Surely he could not be responsible for making a noise like a ball and chain. I went into the room and inquired what they were talking about. It's only a ghost, dear, said Mother. Larry's found a ghost. It's in the attic. Larry thinks it followed me from England. I wonder if it's Mawake. We're not going to start that all over again, said Mother firmly. I don't care who it is, said Larry. Which one of your disembodied friends? I want it removed. I said, I thought that there was just the faintest possibility that it might be Lampedusa. What's that? inquired Mother. I explained that it was the owl the Countess had given me. I might have known it, said Larry. I might have known it. Why it didn't occur to me instantly, I don't know. Now, now, dear, it's only an owl. Only an owl, said Larry. It sounds like a battalion of tanks crashing about up there. Tell him to get it out of the loft. I said I couldn't understand why Lampedusa was making a noise since owls were the quietest of things. I said they drifted through the night on silent wings like flakes of ash. This one hasn't got silent wings, said Larry. It sounds like a one-owl jazz band. Go and get it out. Hurriedly, I took a lamp and made my way up to the attic. When I opened the door, I saw at once what the trouble was. Lampedusa had devoured his mouse and then discovered that there was a long shred of meat still lying in his saucer. This, during the course of the long hot day, had solidified and become welded to the surface of the saucer. Lampedusa, feeling that this shred of meat would do well as a light snack to keep body and soul together until dawn, had endeavoured to pick it off the plate. The curve of his sharp amber beak had gone through the meat, but the meat had refused to part company with the saucer, so that there he was, effectively trapped, flapping ineffectually around the floor, banging and clattering the saucer against the wooden boards in an effort to disentangle it from his beak. So I extricated him from this predicament and carried him down to my bedroom, where I shut him in his cardboard box for safekeeping. Thank you.